When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Jay on crack of batter. Jay on crack? We've gone full Ulster Irish. This we have is the indeed. effect the effect Anton Bilg has had on you. Well, my wife too. <laughs> there is that. There is that. I, I'm, I'm more inclined to blame Anton Bilg. Um Jay on crack. Um my Ton Crack and my, my my wife also, what little Irish she has was learned in um uh Rana Firsta. Oh. So uh, it's 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 will to gamai, and instead of gama as normal people would say. Hmm. I still can't get past how Anton orders soup in in Donegal Irish. It's it's Sue. Hey, who yeah? Hey, who yeah? I was like, that's a, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure now. Can, can, I love this how you you held off the mockery for a half an hour while you're in the room with them, and now it's like full gun. No, no, no. <laughs> he was there, and I was thinking, you know, obviously Anton's the expert on the on the Donegal Irish, but the um. Obviously, he's the expert on the Donegal Irish, and I was thinking, I just have to trust him that this isn't made up, but apparently it isn't. No, well, I mean, yeah, I know that soup is is Sioux, and, mm. and so is sauce, and so is gravy, so it gives you some indication as to the culinary fortitude of the Donegal stomach. <laughs> <laughs> I wish uh, you a man, I wish you a man um, who had no taste buds. He, he, he worked with my dad, uh, my dad's a musician, he was in a band with my dad, and uh, at one stage, he um, ordered... Um, a chicken and chips with curry sauce, but he said he'd have the soup to start, and they um, <laughs> they forgot the soup, so he drank the curry sauce, put the soup all over his chicken and chips. Didn't even notice. That was lovely. That was great. He wasn't from Donegal. He's from um, he's from Ballyfermot. But um, oh yeah, I know some him. people. Some people have no taste buds. In some ways, it's a blessing. <laughs> Equally cursed and blessed. Hmm. Anyway, but anyway, digressing slightly from taste buds. Digressing slightly from taste buds. In some ways, not having taste buds is a lot like being dead. That's an excellent segue. That's better than my segue, where I just <laughs> just lampshaded it. You said we're going to digress now. Hmm. Yeah, it is a lot like being dead. And if you're dead, you might, believe it or not, still have earthly concerns and worries. For example, you might care about what part of the churchyard you got put in. This is a thing. And the Irish people are obviously obsessed with death and their neighbours. <laughs> yeah, two of the things that we talk about the most. Do you know who's dead? Do you know who's dead? And then... Me, me neighbour. <laughs> and... And you won't believe what your one up the road was saying. 
and property. Yeah, yeah. So the, the great trifecta of Irish idle gossip. I have a story. Who's dead? You all believe what you want to say. And uh, look who bought that plot at the end. And some of our more learned listeners realise we are kind of gradually making our way to talk about the fact we are going to be talking about Crane the classic Irish modernist novel today. One of the greatest modernist novels of all time. They said that it was the novel that was so good people were afraid to translate it. So we're going to... We're going to do a bit of a bloomsday on it because um, I've read the book. Have you read the book? I have not read it yet. Oh, great. So we're going to do a bloomsday on it then. Just two arseholes talking about a book they haven't read. One of them hasn't read. <laughs> well, so what I, did, I, what, I suppose I've been fascinated by Crane and Killer and I was, like some learners of Irish, I was intimidated the same way that a person who is learning English might be reluctant to go straight into Ulysses. That oh, yeah, you never go full Ulysses. You never go full Finnegan's. And even it's, it's very, dead. Still tricky. The dead, I've been thinking about the dead a lot recently because of that wonderful Guinness ad, which they keep threatening to remove from the airwaves because technically it's alcohol advertising. Which one is that now? The Christmas um, ad, Guinness ad, is based on the end of the dead. Oh yeah, it is. Yeah, sorry, you're right. Yeah, um, But yeah, they haven't removed alcohol advertising yet, have they? They've been threatening it. Every every time they do, they say, what about that lovely Guinness Christmas ad? Even at the home of the black stuff. We dream of a white one. That one. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's See, ghostly. Even, even I, even I, a, a notorious Grinch and curmudgeon and grump. <laughs> um, even I, who I'm, I'm not a Christmas person, but I do love that ad. I like the one where the sham forgets to say sorry or doesn't want to say sorry until years later. So he swims from New York to a Mick Christopher soundtrack. I, I love that one as well and it's just a wonderful memory of having Mick Christopher's beautiful music yeah. it was Mick, Mick went to my school did he? he went to Colossi Killian in Clondalkin yeah he was born in New York but his family moved back to the homeland to Clondalkin where they're from uh, when he was young and he went to Colossi Killian the secondary school that I would later attend I'm a bit younger than Mick so I wasn't I wasn't a contemporary I'm very Angela's ashes of him Dude, Clondalkin's a lovely place. It's not like Limerick in the 30s. <laughs> it's like in the early 90s. It's not like Frank McCourt sitting there. It was always raining. We had to go to Mr. <laughs> Lamb's. It was, it was raining indoors. It was raining inside of Mr. Lamb and he'd turf you out for eating on the premises. For those of you who aren't, aren't familiar with Mr. Lamb, who is one of the finest uh, chefs in the Clondalkin area. Yeah, yeah. Constantly screwed out of a Michelin star, unfortunately. But where he, where he what he lacks in Michelin stars, he makes up for in social media banter. If you want a a, a, mm. a Chinese restaurant, a Chinese takeaway that is open late and knows how to do good Twitter, Mister Lamb's your, your only man. The one of the funniest things if you do if you are caught in traffic and intend on falling into a social media black hole, the Mister Lamb's replies to his own reviews and Facebook <laughs> are absolutely iconic. Yeah, brilliant. Um, when Mister Lamb found out that I was um, that I had joined the Green Party. <laughs> Uh, he, he told me I was a brown bag superhero and he'd make sure to give me a bamboo chopstick next time I called in. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, big love. Big Iconic. Love. <laughs> but we've got to get back to Crane Killer. 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 The greatest, I think the greatest modernist novel of um, the 20th century. Uh, absolutely incredible. And I am including Ulysses in that because like Ulysses is a steaming pile of overrated nonsense. I know. <laughs> I mean, Ulysses is a bit like Star Trek in that it is excellent, but some of its fans are annoying. 
Nah, I'm not going to go down with that now. Star Trek is unimpeachable. It's perfect. It's wonderful. Look, I think I think particularly when you look at Star Trek compared to the stuff that was on at the, at the other channel at the same time when it came out, you think, yes, this is, is wonderful. But some of the Star Trek enthusiasts are a little bit kooky. Are they or are they not less annoying than the people who go out in Bloomsday? I think that Bloomsday folk are... What the, my, no. Listen, one thing about going out in Bloomsday, my favourite thing is the day after Bloomsday, the Bloomsday Walk of Shame. <laughs> when you have your straw boater around your neck and someone has, <laughs> someone has pushed it down your head. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't, they're not even authentic. Like, they don't eat kidneys for breakfast. They don't visit prostitutes. It's like, what's the, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point of Bloomsday? Well, look, I mean, the point of Bloomsday... It's funny that when you... Have, some people think outside Ireland think Bloomsday is a really big deal. For us, it's just oh, poxy Bloomsday traffic. Poxy Bloomsday traffic. You can't it's get anywhere near Sandy Mount. <laughs> the road is full of stately plump book mulligans. <laughs> so, Queen of Killer. <laughs> Funny thing, I, I, we had a, um, a teacher, in, a lecturer in college who said that you can tell that you know Ulysses is a really hard book because all the famous quotes are from the first chapter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we just sort of give up. Or the last bit, the last soliloquy. Oh, yes. <laughs> Molly Bloom's famous soliloquy. Why is it famous? Because people skip from stately plump book mulligan right the way to Molly Bloom's soliloquy. Mm-hmm. We sort of have an idea of what goes on in the middle. But, um, yeah, it's just... Have you read Ulysses? I have, of course. I've read you. Of course, he says. <laughs> I've read Ulysses, and it was a really enjoyable, rollicking read. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's fabulous. But um, I read it when I was younger. When I was so young, I would unquestioningly read anything. Mm-hmm. And now I don't think I'd sit through it. I really just don't think I would. Like I, I have gotten into this terrible habit of if a book doesn't grab me, I've realised that life's too short now, and I just stop reading it. Yeah. So I do think though sometimes, and with a lot of um, a lot of fine literature, the thing is often the only time you get a chance to actually have the the patience and the time to read a lot of fine modernist literature is when you're in your very early twenties and you're studying it from university. But often the full impact of some of these works isn't really apparent to you until you've had a little more life experience. I think that's true of anything. That's true of anything. And, uh, you know, you look back on uh, anything you may have enjoyed when you were younger, any television series, any film, any any book, any play, uh, anything at all. And you do get a deeper appreciation for it um, with a little bit of life experience, particularly if you've gone through something one of the characters has gone through. Like, you know, yeah. it's no use reading about the heartache of bereavement or lost love when you're 13 years of age. And, you know, everyone important to you in your life is still there. Yeah. But come back to it 20 years later when... You've lived and lost and loved and lost. And yeah, of course it is. It's it's um you get a more valuable insight into things with life experience. And you know, for me, that was that was kind of with Crane Akilla, first read it when I was a naive and young uh student of Irish, mm-hmm. age nineteen. Oh. Yeah. I was I was I was fresh faced. I wasn't fresh faced, I've had a beard since I was fourteen. <laughs> um it's just been grey since I was nineteen. And I loved it. It was recommended to us by a lecturer I had in, in college uh, who considered it the greatest novel ever written. Oh. Um, I don't know if it's quite the greatest novel ever written because, like, Tom Clancy's Op Center is really, really good. I'm only kidding. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's an amazing piece of 20th century Irish literature. Crane Killer, for anyone who doesn't know it, it, it means... Literally, it means the the earth of the church, the clay belonging to the church or the ground belonging to the church. Uh, So it's been translated as the graveyard clay, the graveyard soil, the graveyard earth, the church clay, church and clay. And my favourite, the dirty dust, uh, Ah. which is Alan Titley's uh, translated name for it. It's been translated, it was translated in the... um, 
in the 90s into Norwegian and in the year 2000 into Danish and then in recent years into Czech. But people had sort of shied away from uh, an, an English translation. There were several early attempts made by the publishers, Sarsjelegus Dill, but um, <laughs> the first attempt at translating it was thwarted when the young woman who was selected as the translator gave up to join a convent. <laughs> like, uh, then they asked, after reading this book, I'll never get it right again. <laughs> then they asked the, the, the famous poet Thomas Kinsler, who whose translation of the Tyne is still the go-to reference for students of, of uh, old Irish and, and medieval Irish Recently literature. the winner of an all of a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Irish Book Awards. Yeah, Th- Th- Thomas Kinsler is amazing. And he just flat out refused. It's he just said, basically, this guy was the greatest scholar, poet and translator they could find at the time in the 1960s and 70s. And he just said, translate Crane Killer. <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. And then the last one was a former prison mate of O'Kine's was engaged uh, to do it. Because O'Kine, a fascinating character, uh, Martin O'Kine um, was a school teacher who was kicked out of school teaching because he was in the RA. Um, he... Now, this, he was an IRA recruiting officer in the they're 1930s. Much strict, they were much stricter back then. <laughs> um, of course, he, he was the one who enlisted Brendan Behan into the RA, um, which led to some trouble for Behan as well. Um, but he was involved in all sorts of things. Like, he was a, he was a Marxist, Leninist, uh, a social radical, and a total anti-clericist. He hated the church in, in a big way. And a lot of people think that's that's part of his reasoning for being sacked as a... As a the, the, being in the RA was just an excuse to sack him. Yeah. It was actually because he hated the, the church so much. But he was, he was, um, he was imprisoned uh, briefly, interned during the emergency in the Cora camp when Dev uh, locked up all his old mates who, who hadn't left the RA at that <laughs> stage. Uh, so because of his continued involvement in what was known as the border campaign at the time where the, the IRA took advantage of the emergency to um, create a bit of trouble for Her Majesty's government in the north of Ireland, uh, he was locked up in the Curra and you know he... And they say we were neutral. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, someone who um, who had been in, in prison in the Curra with Martino O'Kine offered to translate Crane uh, Achilla for Sarsela Gastel. But it turns out that because the book was written in 1949, it was after he got out of uh, the Curra, and this guy had no clue as to like any of the motivations or the poetry behind it or the, the duplicity of meaning or anything. And it just turns out that his only claim to fame was, I used to be in prison with Martin O'Kine. I might know the guy and what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so the untranslatable novel, until 2015, Alan Titley did a great translation of it. And then in 2016, uh, 2016 Liam McEnumera and uh, Tim Robinson didn't. Now, that, that one is fascinating because um, Liam McEnumera is an Irish writer, journalist, broadcaster, has great, um, you know, has really made his bones in the Irish language. But um, Tim Robinson is a, is a cartographer from Britain, so a okay. map maker, uh, an English map maker, uh, but just loved this idea of uh, of Cranachilla and, and got involved in the translation. But Cranachilla, for anyone who has not read it, um, is a subversive modernist novel about a bunch of characters, a massive cast of characters, who are all dead. And they're not just dead. They're buried. Dead and buried. They're buried near each other. They are, of course, yeah. They're buried in the same churchyard in the stony soil of Connemara. And the driving force behind the main characters, the main character's motivation, as it were, in it, her name is Katrina Fodjean, and she's dead, and she wants to find out, has she been put in Oite Schilling, 
Aitafine or Aitalafine. Have you ever heard anybody say the Hapney place? Like you put me in the Hapney place. Yeah. So that's the worst place you can be buried. Aitalafine, the Hapney place is is the the substandard graves, the shite part of the graveyard. And all she wants is not to be there. And she wants to gossip and she wants to backbite. And it's it's so it's so um it's novel in its approach to death because any Irish novel that had dealt with death had dealt with ascension to the higher realm, had dealt with the Judeo-Christian ideals of death, yes. had dealt with this idea that there is another world beyond. And what O'Kine is saying, there is another world beyond, but it's actually just beneath. Mm-hmm. And the characters can all still talk to each other, but they're not in heaven. They're not in purgatory. They're in a box. They're in the box you put them in, in the ground you put them in. And they're just going to carry on as if... So they'll gossip and they'll talk about people. And of course, the only time they can find out what's going on in the ground above is when someone joins them. So when a new character joins, they get to gossip and they get to backbite and they get to talk about all of the various different things that are going on uh, above ground in Connemara. And the allegorical significance of this is incredibly rich, partly because obviously Ireland's had this, this, this small town attitudes that have prevailed Irish life, but also the Irish language, the idea that it had been declared dead, but it was still talking yeah, I mean, that's absolutely, uh, it's absolutely key when you look at it now. I mean, for O'Kine, that language was never dead. Yeah. Uh, O'Kine was a radical believer in the the, the, the life and the, the sort of the splodor of the Irish language. He was involved in the in the, the radical language movement that eventually led to the resettlement of Rakarn in County Meath as a Gaeltacht. Uh, so people from all different parts of, of uh, Ireland were given land in County Meath to set up a new Gaeltacht. And the Gaeltacht is still there, but it was, uh, uh, as people are fond of telling me, it was the original pop-up Gaeltacht, Deb's <laughs> original pop-up Gaeltacht in the in the 50s. Um, but yeah, so allegorically, I don't think O'Kine meant in any way to have these deaths or these these dead people, these dead characters symbolise the language that he loved so much. But there's no doubt about it. He loved the language and it was at the forefront of his mind and the, the revitalisation. He, as a radical Marxist-Leninist agitator, he believed strongly in Arroyl Neheren or the reconquest of Ireland. And he imagined a, a linguistic reconquest as well. Because as a, you know, as... As a Gaeltacht, uh, as as someone who was born in Connemara, someone who grew up speaking Irish, he sort of had this idea that the fact that the establishment, which he fought so much to uh, to take down, uh, spoke English, and they and they did. Even though Dev was an Irish speaker, English was the language of commerce. It was the language of government. It was the language of trade. It was the language of everyone. Was the language of the church in in a big way as well. Uh, so it was everything he stood for was in Irish and everything mm. he stood against was in English. So uh, he did a lot of translation as well when he was, uh, when he was, he translated some of the, um, the Anglo-Irish classics. He translated a lot of, um, a lot of work, including Charles Kickham. He translated the, his novel, Sally Kavanagh. Uh, he translated and wrote a load of lingual political pamphlets as well. Uh, he oh. was big into Wolf Tone. He translated a lot of Wolf Tone's works and he wrote a lot about uh, Wolf Tone, including one one pamphlet that was particularly famous called Tone in Yeggs and You Tone Yesterday and Today, saying how how relevant uh, he was. And then he did a huge uh, study in the sixties on uh, the social status and the actual use of the Irish language in the west of Ireland, um, and that was titled On Gaeilgeofio Destined to Pass. So he was probably the most innovative um, Irish author. Definitely yeah. of the twentieth century, maybe Dermot O'Sullivan could hold a candle to him, but O'Kine was um, 
he was he was something special. He was something else. And and Krainakilla is just something wonderful as a book. And they've made a film of it. Um, mm. I to be honest with you. I mean, I hate to say this because I love that it was done and it yeah. was a great attempt, but I didn't like it. I don't think it suited to the medium. What it is perfectly for is by the same writer, Makdara Farta, who fans of Russ Naroon would recognise as Tig, the bar owner. Oh. He wrote the adaptation of the, uh, you're the adapted screenplay for the film, but prior to that, he had written the um, the adapted sc- screenplay, not screenplay, for a radio play. Yeah, radio play. Oh, and it's perfect for that medium. It's perfect for that medium because, you know, in in the film, you have to have these ghostly specters walking around, and yeah. I don't necessarily think that's what O'Kine intended with this. He's yeah. literally saying, "No, they're in the ground, they're in the dirt, they're rotting in the dirt, but they're still there." Creating visual interest for something that talking is 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 a, is a trick, and I know, like I was just thinking there about how the when the West Wing was being made again, Star Trek for uh, for posh people is and the. Uh, they 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 literally had to come up with the idea of people walking down corridors and, and oh, that's where they've invented Sorkining. Yeah, they invented Sorkining because they said because um, Aaron Sorkin famously said he's only ever written one action scene and that's in A Few Good Men when Tom Cruise's character buys a magazine. And <laughs> everything else is talking. Everything else is pure talking. So they said, oh, well, we have to find some way of you know of moving this across. But anyway, but similarly, yes, when you have a bunch of characters and their whole thing is that they are actually all in boxes near each other and doing to talk to each other, it's something that's deeply suited to radio work, but not visual. Yeah, not not visual. Yeah, and um, like like I said, fair play, great attempt, and it's 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 good. It's a good movie. It's well worth watching. But there's a three-hour, forty-minute radio play done of it on uh, on RT broadcast on the national broadcaster, uh, adapted for radio by Makdara Ofarta, and it is glorious. Now, not saying that it's accessible, mm-hmm. not saying that it's easy to get into. It's not. It is arguably like what we were saying earlier, the Ulysses of the Irish language. Uh, it's tough, but it's in. Connemara Irish, and it's great. And and the great thing about O'Kine writing was a lot of the Irish language writing at the time was sanitized and it was it was trying to portray Irish language as something it's not and never has been which is some sort of a holier than thou mm-hmm. language the language of the angels the language of god or anything like that it it was the language of the people so it's got some of the best Irish language curses and malachty that you could ever imagine like well, you know you could, uh, you know or um or a, a, dir- my, a dirty lobster no, 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 Gleamra, Gleamra. It's basically, and again, this, I suppose, brings into question the translation. When you're translating something like a curse or, or an ex- exclamation, do you yeah. go faithfully word for word? Because that's what, that's what Makanumra and Robinson did in 2016. So, oh, and Gleamra Skoluch becomes, oh, the boastful scold. But when Titley did it in 2015 in The Dirty Dust, he translated the sense because, yeah. you know, the, the words may not necessarily convey the sense. It doesn't translate well. So instead of being a boastful scold, it was, oh, the loudmouth scuzzy bastard. <laughs> it's just, just an, an mm. awful an awful lot better. Like uh, So, for example, we're um, up complaining about uh, a couple that got married. And again, a lot of this is gossip and mm. just complaining and pissing and moaning about people, uh, which is just the beauty of it, that the dead are, are as they were when they were alive. Their mm. worst characteristics and best characteristics come to the fore. Which, if you're to take Machanumra and Robinson's approach, oh, they were very well matched. The red-haired sourpuss and the snotty streak of misery. 
But Titley went one further and sort of mm. went with the with the, with the, the sense of it. It's like they were well suited to one another: the dour faced, copper knobbed scum and the snivelling, snotty shithead. So it's just it's just this beautiful mm. and again trying to bring across this this onomatopoeia of like a skullachon smuishuk, mm. but that's a snivelling, snotty shithead. If ever I heard one, you know, as opposed to a, a snotty streak of misery, a lanky streak of piss, or anything like that. It's just and and my favourite one. The whole thing is is uh, so. Uh, Mucha goes bar as smooching at Edimshire, where she's cursing someone. She says, Mucha goes bar air on smooching. So, Mucha goes bart is the curse. Mm. And uh, Robinson and Makanumra translated that as, uh, May the puss face smother and drown, says I. May you smother, may you drown. Mucha goes bart. But really, when you say Mucha goes bart, you're not wishing death on someone. What you're saying is, um, as Alan Titley so gently puts, F the fucking fruitcake, says I. <laughs> So you're you're just saying like you know ah feck him like mm. you know what I mean you know mucha goes bart pluchert you know I'm not actually wishing death on you I'm just saying mm. you're a gobshite yeah so and I think I think Titley Titley nailed on the sense uh, of the words it's 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 still I would hazard an almost untranslatable novel and and definitely well worth reading in the Irish language if you if you ever felt you had the ability to, 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 to have a crack at it. Definitely a target for a learner to... Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah, it's like if you, if you are learning English, you might one day dream of reading Ulysses. Yeah. If you're learning Irish, you might one day dream of reading uh, O'Kine's... Marching O'Kine's uh, Crane Killer. Uh, it gets my stamp of approval anyway. Absolutely. When it comes to understanding political issues, I am a self-confessed toddler. That's why I've enlisted the help of Steve, my politically savvy drinking buddy, to help me better understand politics. Every couple of weeks, we get together and record on topics like what is the politics of language, what is Watergate, how the internet is killing democracy. We take these big issues and we break them down into silly little comedic bite-sized bits. If you like the sound of that, then search for What Am Politics in your podcast app of choice or find us here on the Headstuff Podcast Network. The, um, just when you're talking there about the, the, the sense being translated, users of folklore.ie, the incredible resource for learners and Irish users, they often do this as well. Because I remember where I was looking up the Irish for for fuck's sake, and it's in Annam Day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and and like, in the name of God would be the direct translation. Mm -hmm. But really, like, if you want to say for fuck's sake, you'd say in Annam Day. It's like, and, you know, oh, isn't that very irreligious? Isn't that very blasphemous? And, and I remember... I remember speaking to someone having this conversation, this deep conversation. I say deep conversation, it's like five points in. So this deep conversation about is there too much religion in the Irish language and why do we say diagwit and all that? It's like, yeah, but there's religion in almost every language. And, yeah. You know, we just, we ignore the sense of it in English. Mm. When we say goodbye, it's a corruption of God be with you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's and you, you do see this that in, in, in Hamlet at one point he says goodbye, but he has all the, uh, all the apostrophes in the show. It's God be, God be with ye. Oh, yeah, yeah, God be with you. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's goodbye. And, uh, you know, so it, it comes from God be with you. And we are we are happy enough to ignore the sense of it in mm. English. So I think I'm happy enough to ignore the sense of it in Irish. So when I say in Annam Day, I'm not saying in the name of God. Folklore is right. Yeah. I'm saying for sake. Because sometimes people do ask me about, I, I'm looking for an irreligious greeting or a non-religious greeting other than David. And I say, I say David, but even though I wouldn't be a man of deep faith. But, um, but, people, but my point is, if you say, oh, oh my God, or OMG, then are you actually, you know, making a religious declaration? Or OMD. Oh, my yeah. Oh, yeah. Fair air a hone. Knock well, knock, knock well, hone more a key. I'm not going to comment on her tone. That, that's a lyric. It's a famous <laughs> translation of a very famous song. Oh, is it? Yeah. Well, what song? 
Ba wahlam khonin more agus oh agus ni fadlam brega inch agus ni fadlam smilem tony more agus ni fadlam brega inch yeah uh, on on read the circular oh jesus funnily enough uh, um sir mixlots i like big butts and i cannot lie song Often known to younger listeners only for the extract used in Friends, um, the later verses show that it actually really is a political song giving out about the lack of black models in front of fashion magazines. But also it is one of the most profitable rap songs ever because it contains no samples. Ah, so every penny went to... Every penny went to Sir Mix-a-Lot and it has been covered and sampled itself. So so, um, yeah. Yeah, so it has actually become one of the, one of the most profitable... Rap songs. There's there was a, a bit in Friends, was there? There was. There's a bit when um, uh, when Rachel's trying to make her child stop crying and the only thing that would do it was this song, but she only used the first verse, which uh, yeah, I, I, like I like Big Butts, butts and I Can't, and can't lie. lie. All you other brothers can't deny when a girl walks in with itty be waste and a round thing in your face, you get sprung. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But the, the later verses go into, he, he goes into more detail saying that, you know, giving out that certain magazines, including Cosmo, rarely put, uh, if ever at the time, because before Naomi Campbell. Yeah ever put uh, black models on the cover. And he attributed this to, you know, a European uh, um, beauty oh, norm. Oh, institutional racism. Yes. It's just institutional racism. That's exactly it. Like, yeah. Um, I mean, this is this would be like if if they sang the first verse of Come Out Your Black and Tans and, and stopped before they got to the bit when the black and tans were being asked to leave. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I suppose, like, if you just sing um, Come Out Your Black and Tans, like, it doesn't get less political. As it, goes. it starts uh, off yeah. pretty political. I was born on Dublin streets when the Royal Drum did beat. Yeah, and the and laughing it, English feet would tramp all over us. It's but, pretty much, it's pretty much WYSIWYG. It's Ron Seal. It does what it says on the tin from verse one. It's interesting that it was one of the first. Um, it was one of the first Republican ballads to put the struggle in a global uh, post-colonial context. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it and the Foggy Jew, which did so as well by comparing the First World War uh, with with the Rising. Uh, you know, had they died, uh, it was better they died beneath an Irish guy than at Suvla or Sudel Bar. Mm. You know, so you know, or had they died by Pierce's side or fought with the Bell Cahill Brew, their their names we would keep with the Fenian sleep in the shroud of the Foggy Jew. This... It was this comparison of how we treated. The people of 1916 and and the people who went to fight in in the Redmondites, for example, mm-hmm. and and yeah, it it did it gave it the global context. But yeah, um, Dominic Beans come out you black and tans. See the Beans, lad, they were class. They were class. Brendan Dominic, it's dead on. Is <laughs> that yeah? They they were a sound bunch of lads and with a remarkable creative output. I remember one of my first bosses in one of my early jobs was saying that he went to a Brendan Behan play. And Brendan Behan was in the audience and he's booing it all the way through and he had to be asked to leave. <laughs> yeah. My favourite story about Brendan Behan is when, when he went to Canada, they interviewed him and I said, what made you want to take a trip to Canada, Mr. Behan? He was on Canadian television. <laughs> he said, I was at Dublin Airport and I seen a sign and I said, drink Canada dry. So I said, I'll try. <laughs> it's fantastic. Behan was um, mm, a remarkable wish and certainly a... Uh... Have you ever listened to his albums? Because like there's one brilliant album of being singing his favorite folk songs and 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 it, it, he's obviously drinking as the recording is going on because it descends like the first the first few tracks are you know seven and eight minutes long story of the song and the song story of the song and the song and then it gets shorter and shorter and shorter the story gets shorter or a little mm-hmm. bit messier the song gets a bit shorter he breaks off and he starts another story and another song it's um oh, it's one of one Ella it's one of one Ella and of course good man for the Gaelic. Uh, Brandon O'Bachon, 
Himself and Martin O'Kine. Can you yeah. believe that? Both in the Ra, both Grail Gory, and two of the most important literary figures this island has ever had. And because Martin O'Kine didn't write in English, he's sort of the forgotten half of that that odd couple. And we are definitely we are going to do an episode on bread and beans soon. Uh, so that's uh, that is in the post. We yeah, because obviously Ungil and the translation of Ungil is massive. But before we wind up, and I, I do have a, a a grave related, a very grave story to tell, which gonna, will tie us back to Crane and Killer. And that um, a obviously people are an Irish who are obsessed with death, but they're also obsessed with property. And I used to work with a guy. We'll call him Finnegan, not his real name. <laughs> and one one day, Finnegan was, was was very crestfallen. And I was saying, "Are you okay, Finnegan? What's what's going down?" And he said that his parents weren't speaking to each other, and he was a very bad atmosphere in the house his mother had picked out a grave site you know for where she'd be buried and she I thought it was absolutely beautiful it was wonderful but because graves typically people don't take out mortgages to get graves so when graves go up in value it's a good predictor of a property bubble which we are now having so and this happens two or three years before a property bubble you find graveyard plots start going up in value and his father had noticed this and he flipped the graveyard site he'd sold it for like an extra profit and he came home and he said Mary we're getting cremated <laughs> and he had a big wad of cash in his hand, and she was furious. Oh, God. There's a, there's a live album by The Frames where Glenn Hansard starts telling a story. I don't know whether it was him. He broke a string or something, so he's just telling a story to the crowd what he was doing. He was talking about when he was going out with this girl, and he thought it would be a lovely idea um, to get a star named after her. Mm-hmm. And he went to try and, and get a star named after her, but it was needlessly complex. And by the time he finally got around to finding the star that we were named after, he realized it couldn't be seen by the human eye. It can only be seen from a radar telescope like they have in, in Dunsink Observatory. Mm-hmm. He said, that's not going to be any good. So I know, I got something equally as romantic. So he bought her a plot. <laughs> <laughs> he bought her a grave. That's... And needless to say, she broke up with him. That was. <laughs> this reminds me of a famous... Uh, proposal line in Irish. Er wailat fecorha lima winter. Would you like to be buried with my people? I tell you, listen, if you take nothing away from this podcast but that line, try that next time you're out in a pub in the Gaeltacht. If you're out in Tifaji Hay or anywhere like that. Er wailat fecorha lima winter. Tanya. You'll get the shift. Oh, guaranteed action. Guaranteed action. <laughs> Not a guarantee. Not a guarantee. So before we wrap up, is there any other Cranachilla crack? Another of the salty put downs that can only come from a person who's in a grave thinking about, you know. Yeah. So one of the things that stuck out with me um, is, again, and and it's sort of the the interest of, of translation and, and, and the challenge of translation, uh, what you do when you're. When you're faced with a, a phrase, and this phrase is like, Hamas smogelyamach, vishachol rain le drish firin. So I, I, I threw out a spit and, uh, you know, I, I spat, come a smuggler, Mark. Um, smuggler being a spit or a snot, which we know from having discussed smuggly roan yeah. on, on the show in, in, in the past. And and again, when this was translated by Mokanumra and Robinson in The Graveyard Clay, they said, I threw out a spit. It was as stiff as a male briar, which, of course, <laughs> is 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 what it means. Mm-hmm. Drish being um, briar and, and firin being male. But of course, what does that mean in itself? And Alan Titley, again, when in his translation, The Dirty Dust in 2015, he nailed it. It's like, I spat out a glob. It was as stiff as a hard on. Mm-hmm. A male briar. A male briar. So, Drish Ferrin. There you go. Well, there you have it. Get that down, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good grave. <laughs> so, where can people find um, Crane and Killer? Crane Killer in all good bookshops. All if, good bookshops. If, 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 if your bookshop doesn't have a copy of Crane and Killer, get another bookshop. 
Uh, if you're in Dublin, there's definitely copies in Hodges Figgis on uh, Dawson Street. Definitely copies in on Shuppel Hour, obviously, on Harcourt Street. Uh, and in fact, there's there's guaranteed to be copies of all the great literary works of Skylge in on Shuppel Hour on Harcourt Street. It's, Is it in the public domain, the Irish version? Um, yeah, good question. I don't know. Could someone do a podcast series just reading it out? Uh, one wouldn't know. I don't know. You know, you should get Tyg from Rosnaroon on it and find out did he pay for the rights for the RT radio play. Ooh. Makdara Farta. Matatu Gaisak Makdara. Stall it. We love scoops. Absolutely. So, until the next time, it's a slant from me. It's a slow Wimpshire. Catch you then. This episode is brought to you by Old Forester, ready to drink mint julep. <laughs> yes, indeed. We were um, we were lucky enough that recently one of our visitors from the United States brought us a beautiful bottle of Ohio maple syrup, which is lovely, but also a bottle of Old Forester mint julep. Thank you very much, Katie Kermode. Cheers, Katie. Mother Folklore comes out every Friday on the Headstuff Podcast Network. If you're looking for another show to listen to, until then, I would like to recommend Words That Affect presented by Connor Reed, a wonderful literary podcast, Taranoia, in which Tara Flynn talks about being a mad owl Egypt and how we're all, how we're all Egypt's even we're all just doing our best. It's just a wonderful, she is a national treasure. Um, she deserves a lot more support for what she's doing because I think it's just, it's just wonderful and she has an absolute silken, beautiful, golden voice. And I would also, if you're still looking for, if you can't, if you haven't stuffed your face with that many podcasts, there is What Am Politics. Pat, you were a guest on What Am Politics, weren't you? I was, yeah. What Am Politics is a brilliant, irreverent show uh, where two novices track their way through all things politics. Stephen Ritchie, um, yeah, fantastic show. It'll answer any and all of your questions about what exactly am politics. Thanks very much to Kirsten Shield for doing her art. She's just brilliant. I, I just love how she interprets what we the the stuff we come out with into a wonderful piece of artwork every week. Thanks to Brian for producing. You don't know you don't realise how hard that guy works to cut down on the shite we talk. Oh no, I do. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Brian. Mm-hmm. And also thanks to the backroom team in Head Stuff, including Paddy and Alan. We're just really grateful for all their work. You can support Head Stuff on Patreon. In the meantime, you can contact the show at motherfolkloreheadstuff.org. We're going to do another mailbag episode soon. Till the next time, Slangafall. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Have you been drinking it straight from the bottle?